John 11, 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Shannon told me when, I, when she looked at the bulletin this morning, Gabe would laugh that you have a title. He'd wonder who you are. But he would be pleased that he got a preview as much as he liked to flip through the pages to find all the, uh, all the Scripture references. They're, they're, they were listed in the bulletin. This is a hard day. And we come together hurting. We know that what we say and what we do today won't fix it. And there's a lot of us that like to fix things. But we also know that what we say and what we do here today will be used by our Father to heal and to strengthen over time that which has been broken. Because we know the one that we followed. We follow the one who, who doesn't quench the smoking flax. He doesn't break the bruised reed. He cares for it. We come together in the presence of God our Father, of Jesus Christ, His Son, and His Holy Spirit this morning, trusting and knowing that they are at work, and also to receive what He has for us. It's because of that truth we can come together hopeful while hurting, for we know what He's done in the past. And as He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, he will be faithful once again and always. We need to know, and perhaps you read what Bobby posted earlier this week, where she became a teacher to us all, a mother in the midst of grief that reminded us that Gabe is a Christian. Not was. Is. That's a continual state of being. Where we get that from, where we understand that from, it goes all the way back into Exodus. Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. When God was responding to Moses, he said to him out of the burning bush, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Jesus later on, many, many years later on, as he was speaking to some of the religious leaders of the day, cited that, saying, as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. The passage we read as we began this morning is in the midst of loss. Loss of a family member, loss of a friend, one of Jesus' close friends. His name was Lazarus. Jesus comes and Martha has questions and Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Gabe believed that. And because of that, we have confidence that because Jesus Christ is risen, so Gabe is. In the tragedy of Tuesday morning, 
sooner than the announcement came, his eyes were open in heaven. And he looked full in his Savior's face. Because of Christ and his victory over the grave. He's even now worshiping him in his direct presence. And he's hearing something way better than me talking. I hope that's the case for you. I pray that's the case for you. That you have believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that you might know new life, comfort, and hope, as only He can give now and eternal life with Him to come. And I would encourage you, if you have not, let today be that day. Because that is the only way that any of us who are in Christ can come together and know comfort and hope in the midst of this. We confess this morning, as difficult as it is in this time, or in these times, that God is sovereign. That means He has all power. And as difficult as that can be in times like these, we also recognize that if He was not sovereign, if He did not have all power, and that He was not all good, we would have no reason for the comfort and the hope that many have already said they've experienced in the midst of our mourning. As we walk through this morning, we will be turning to the Old Testament frequently because so often it gives us such vivid images of comfort. It's from the Old Testament that we get the picture of the shepherd who walks through the valley of the shadow. It's in the Old Testament where in the midst of Jerusalem being destroyed, we read of Jeremiah saying, His mercies are new every morning, and that includes this morning. It's in those pages where we read that story of God delivering His people, of responding to their call. Now, This isn't to say that the New Testament doesn't have those images of comfort. It most certainly does, and those will be woven in as well. But we have come this day into a house of mourning. In Ecclesiastes 2, 7, 2 through 4, Solomon writes, It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Now elsewhere he has other good things to say about feasting in the place and the time, of laughter in the place and the time. But here it's interesting that he says this, and what he's trying for, to get us to realize and to recognize that we so quickly forget is life is brief. It's like a vapor. He wants us to know, he says, that the living lay it to heart that... Our days are numbered. None of us knows the day. And none of us know how quickly they may pass by. The sorrowful heart, he wants us to know, can know joy and gladness. Oftentimes, the laughter masks something that unless it gives way to that sorrow, it'll never know the healing that can come. The sorrowful heart can know joy and gladness. And the strange thing that maybe doesn't compute for us, is that in the midst of sorrow, there can even be joy and gladness. That only comes from something which transcends our time and our place and that is eternal and that is sure. But there's something else that's found there. 
that Scripture always and everywhere speaks highly of. Wisdom. Wisdom is found there. A wisdom is found there that recognizes the brevity of life and therefore sees the importance of each day lived quorum deo before the face of God for his glory and for the good of his people. You saw that in Gabe's smile, didn't you? A young man who lived for God's glory and for the good of his people. I don't know anybody that met him that didn't remember his smile. We come into this day. It's the day that God has given us. It's not an easy day. But it's a day to be received from His hand and to glorify Him in it. And that might not look like what we typically would say or do. But the God we confess, the God we believe, the God we follow is the one who can be glorified even in the tear-streaked face. In the silence of not knowing what to say or how to say it. In the willingness to step forward and do something that needs to be done. We're also told in another place of mourning. And in Matthew chapter 5, we have something else that comes of mourning. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, we are told by Jesus himself, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And we comfort as those who have confessed Christ and trust Christ, and we place that comfort in the one who is the only one who has the ability to bring it. And if we take that word comfort, in order to comfort, one must have strength. And if you trace the word to its roots, it comes out of the Latin, whom, with, fort, strength. The only way comfort is possible is if it's in the hands of someone who has strength. And the one who can comfort, the one that we come to, the one that we are in as we confess Christ, is the one who has all power and all strength. Therefore, he has the ability and the willingness and takes joy comfort, even in the midst of darkness. So we've come into this day and into a house of mourning. And we've been there for a few days. We're passing through the waters, Isaiah 43, 1 through 4. It says, but now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not. For I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. 
And I have to repent before you. Because the beginning of that verse is fear not. I spent a lot of this week afraid to sit down and write. Because I don't want to do this. But I do. Any of you that have dealt with a juxtaposition of feelings this week probably understand. He's my friend, my student. The one that if he didn't practice had to eat potatoes. But we pass through the waters. That's an illusion that's a, that points to the children of Israel as they walked through the Red Sea as God delivered them. The image that goes there is that he was before them and behind them. The pillar of fire went before to lead the way, to light the way. The cloud was behind them to obscure them, to keep them protected from the Egyptians that pursued them. And as they passed through the waters, there was no doubt about the presence of God. And I hope, I hope, you know the reality of that presence as we pass through these waters. But what happens as we pass through these waters and the waters and the rivers and the fire and the flames that he speaks of, that he carries us through? What are some of the things that we do? What are some of the things you've done? We cry out. We cry out. In Exodus 2, 23 through 25, the Israelites, after 400 years of slavery in the land of Egypt, eventually says they cried. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. It's not because He needed to be reminded. He knew. The word for groaning there is za'ak, or za'akah. It means to cry out, to groan in deepest anguish from the depths of your being. That's what they were doing, and maybe that's what you've been doing. Where have those cries gone? If there's been someone alongside of you, that's good, but did they go higher than that? Because as much as you love and care for the person alongside of you, they aren't the ones, they might be a tool of relief, but they aren't the ones who can finally bring the relief that you seek. It's interesting, just before that in Exodus, it says that they cried out. And it doesn't say that they cried out to God, just that they cried out. And then Moses tells us God heard their cry. But he didn't stop at hearing. God heard. He heard it. And he what? He remembered. A covenant that he had made, that he would protect, that he would defend, that he would provide. And those living in that day would go, this is protecting, this is providing. And the answer they got back seems to have been silence. Moses tells us God saw and he knew. And then he turns the page into the next chapter. And he starts to reveal that as he heard and he remembered, as he saw and he knew, he had a plan. And that plan involved a shepherd in the middle of nowhere. The well they cried out, he was at work. 
It would take time. This will take time. We're so American because people want to put a time limit on this. Don't do that. It's not often I'll tell you what to do, but don't do that. For some people, in a week, things will be improving. Some might be two. It might be a year. It might take longer. Don't put a time limit on it. Remember, as the Israelite people waited and Moses was being prepared and he was being sent, there was going to be time. They were going to continue in that place until that time that God delivers them. And that time was the perfect time. So we cry out. I would encourage you to cry out to God. He will hear. He will answer. And it's entirely likely and totally in his character that he's even answering right now. Anybody had questions this week? Because when we pass through the waters, that's another thing that comes up as we walk through. We don't just cry out, we ask questions. Maybe a question was, God, why did you make Gabe for only 17 years? He didn't. He made Gabe for eternity. He made Gabe for eternity. He made you for eternity. And it's his desire and his want that you would spend eternity with him. That's what he's made everyone for. So if that's your question, be assured that Gabe wasn't made for 17 years. He was made for eternity, and he is because of who God is and who Christ is. The other thing, sometimes we start to ask questions and we get to those questions that are hard or difficult and, and, and we, we wonder, well, can I ask that question? What do you think? How big is God? The God that we proclaim, the God we confess, the God we love and the God we follow is big enough for all of those questions. If you doubt that, start your journey through the Psalms. Because every question is asked. Questions from sorrow, questions from anger, questions from confusion, questions, you name it, they're all there. They take all those questions to God. And here's the thing, God doesn't necessarily answer all of those questions, but the interesting thing about every one of those psalmists is they come with these heavy, serious questions that sometimes they're like, oh, you can't ask God that. Yes, you can. Even if they don't get their answer, they find comfort. They find a peace. And it's because of the one that they've taken those things to. And we read it and it's poetic and maybe you're not into poetry. Oh well, give it a shot. And it maybe doesn't happen in a moment. They could be recording it afterwards of here is where I was and this is how you worked. They might still be in the midst of the difficulty and the problem. And yet, in the midst of the storm, peace comes. We can ask any question of God. He's big enough to handle it. 
And he also doesn't take offense at it. We cannot demand an answer from God. Because if we would demand an answer from God, what we're doing is we're lowering Him and we're raising ourselves up. So, while we can ask God any question, we do need to take heed how we ask questions of God. Now, he's not going to be teetotaling and, oh, you didn't get the right form. He's going to, but we want to think about our attitude as we go before God. The one in whose image all men, women, and children are made. The one who gives us every breath. Some of our questions may and have have become something like, what if I had? If only I had, or if only we had. Hear me if that is you. This is not your fault. This is not your fault. Well, you may not believe that right now. You need to hear that. And if nobody else will continue to reaffirm this truth for you, I will. But I know there's others here that will reaffirm that truth for all who need to hear it. The enemy wants to take that question and tear you and by extension us apart. So while you might not be able to defend yourself, that is part of what he's brought us together for, that we would defend each other. Another question that's come from the heart of a father is, if only I'd been able to do more. Maybe that's come from the mother too. This mother and father did the greatest of all things. They introduced him to his Savior. It's the greatest thing any mother or father could do. And as he heard, well done, good and faithful servant, you guys need to hear, well done as well. It's the greatest thing any of us could want. Though the hurt is immense. When we ask questions, the one who came to my mind, it's a long book. Trust me, I wanted to hit every book in the Bible. I'm not going to this morning. But Job. Job was a man who endured similar sorrow. He was a man who, we, 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 we witness him in the beginning of the book, he loses everything, including his children. And he's in the darkest of dark valleys. And he had a lot of questions. We read through Job and he has all these questions. And the thing we forget when we read Job is we know why this ha is happening, but Job doesn't. Job doesn't know why this is happening. And Job, he asks all these questions, and we know that Job, from the beginning, that he was a righteous man according to God. God accounted him righteous. He goes through all of this. He's got three lousy friends. I mean, the best thing they do is they're present with him. They're quiet for a week, and that's really about the best thing we can say. After that, they start to talk. And 
Though they do reveal some truths, they're, they're really bad at their job. But Job asks so many questions, and it gets to, gets to the end of Job, and when you come to the end of Job, God shows up. Where had he been throughout the rest of Job? He was right there. What had he been doing? Same thing he was doing when the Israelite children cried out. He heard. He remembered. He saw. And he knew. And what did he do? He sat there. Maybe we should take a tip from God sometimes just to sit and listen. Right? He sits and he listens and then he comes. And this struck me this week in a particular way that it hadn't before. Do you know what he doesn't do? He doesn't answer Job's questions. He asks a series of rhetorical questions himself. He doesn't answer Job's questions. What he does is he gives Job himself. He's present with Job. And he doesn't hold anything that Job has asked against him. In fact, Job goes and makes sacrifices for his friends who said all sorts of things. God's like, yeah, they're way off base. The question in the midst of this is we have so many questions. Do you want the answer to your questions or do you want God himself? That's not to stop you asking questions. But if we want answers to our questions, which trust me, the answers that God could give to our questions are way better than any answers there could be. But in comparison to God himself, would you rather have those answers or him? Job received him. I want you to receive him. So ask the questions. Ask them to him. And when he shows up, because notice it wasn't instantly with Job. Be comforted. Job himself, though there was he was counter righteous by God, he repented in dust and ashes, and, and there's a rejoicing in that. Something else that happens in the midst of the the waters and the rivers, the flame and the fire. We cry out, we ask questions. Perhaps we lack the feeling of his closeness. I don't know if he's here. I don't feel him here. Why did he leave? He didn't leave. And I would tell you, we must know the word to believe the word and feel its effect. How can you come with hope when you don't have the feeling? Because I know the truth. And this one can be particularly dangerous. Because the enemy really likes this one. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, it says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Notice what that enemy, what that lion does. It prowls, seeking what? Someone to devour. Who does it go after? The hurt. 
It goes after the hurt or the weakened. And when we mentioned the sovereignty of God, we have to know that God allowed this, but He didn't allow it so that we would be destroyed. The enemy wants you to believe that. The enemy knows that as we mourn, yes, there is a weakness that comes, but when we know Christ and when we are in Christ, there's a strength that is there as well, but he's counting on the fact that you're going to believe the lie. Because the enemy wants you and he wants us to believe God isn't near, that he isn't good, that he's not faithful, that he's not just, that he's not present, and he doesn't care how or why you don't come together He just wants you isolated. Take refuge in Christ. Resist the Spirit. If we see someone among us starting to waver, what do we do? We gather around them. Not because we're so strong, but the one we trust, we confess, we follow is strong to make us strong, but we know that they're vulnerable. And what what, what do we see animals do? They encircle them. Get them into the middle and do what? Protect them. So that well, they haven't been able to pick up that armor, though they desperately want to, you who are in your armor, circle up. Be on guard. Stand. Romans 6, 3-5 says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Later on in Romans 12, Paul says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. If you are in Christ, you have been made part of one body to be nourished. Yes, to be used for the benefit of that body, to be protected. And to be healed within it. It's his means. That as you hear his word, that as you gather in fellowship, that as we pray together, as we sing together, as we receive of the elements together, we would be protected, preserved, nourished, healed. And then it would take place together. What the enemy wants is for this to be loosened, to break off. What God's desire is, is that it would be brought together. And it will, at times, be uncomfortable. It'll be difficult. And some of you have heard me this week in different situations talk about when a bone breaks. When a bone breaks, we go to the doctor to do what? So that it would be aligned. Sorry, the chiropractor. (laughs) So that it would be aligned. And then they cast it, but they check it. You go back for checkups to make sure that it's still what? That it's aligned. 
Because it'll heal if it's not quite aligned, but there could be problems that come as a result of that. A temptation in times like these is to not be where? Here. But he's put us together so that what? So like that bone, when it's in good alignment and it starts to heal, there's this wonderful thing that starts to happen. A lot of times where that bone heals, it's actually stronger. And so he would have us come together so that though we hurt, though we're broken, we might know healing that makes us stronger. And we might not understand that. We might never understand that. We might not believe that right now, but that doesn't mean that it's not true. He's at work in that. He's made us part of one body to be nourished, to be used for each other, to be protected, and to protect, to be healed. So the enemy, he wants you to believe this lie that God's not around. He, He departed. He left at some point. No, he never did. The truth is Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And we love that part. Stop right there. Because after that, it starts to get what? Uncomfortable. even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It gets uncomfortable because where is he walking? In the valley of the shadow of death. The valley of the shadow is a place where you may not feel the closeness of your Lord and Savior. But listen to what the psalmist says. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. He knows that God is present. That's been conveyed to him. He knows that God is present with him, though he says nothing of a feeling. I don't necessarily feel it. And if it's a very shadowy, very dark valley, he might not even see him. And yet he knows because of who he is, where is he? He's right there. He knows that God is present. And he knows that the rod and the staff are there. Well, what is that rod? That rod is that instrument of protection. And and the rod is there to ward off predators. That staff, that staff is there to do what? To retrieve my wandering feet. He knows the path. I get in the dark and I'm real good at, hey. And that staff might come, but his comfort is in the known and real presence of God. I might not feel his presence until until I feel the wind of the rod being swung at the merciless predator that I was totally unaware of, but he knew was right there and knew the right time to swing, to ward it off. I might not know of the presence of a staff until that staff reaches out to bring those feet back to the faithful path, restraining them with powerful mercy and immense love to come back to this place. 
even though we're in the midst of this valley. He sets a table in the presence of my enemies, the last of which do you remember is to be destroyed? Death. The last of which to be destroyed is death. The one that our brother has passed through. And those life. But what's more than that? He hasn't led us into this valley alone. I know Pastor Jesus is there with me. You're right. That shepherd's there with you. But do you know who else he led into this valley? All of us. He led all of us into this valley together so that we would not be alone. Because he will ward off those predators. He will restore those feet to the right path. And he will do that through his divine and direct intervention, yes, but sometimes he will also do it. And oftentimes he will also do it through those other sheep that he's placed around us. We walk in the presence of each other, and we also walk in the presence of the only one who walked this valley alone and who did so so that you would never have to. The one who on the cross, as he experienced the darkness and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Once he passes through the travail, says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It is finished. So, don't make it dependent upon a feeling. Know the truth of God that He's there. This is why I encourage you to know Scripture, even if it's one verse. Because one verse is more powerful than that enemy that comes against you. And we'll pray. We would pray that we would have a feeling because there is a feeling that comes with knowing Christ and having His Spirit. Pray that you would have the feeling of His nearness, but trust the promise that He has said, He will never leave you nor forsake you. Indeed, is with you until the end of the age like he says in Matthew 28, 20. And it's a similar question to Job's question. Would you prefer the answers to the questions or God himself? Would you prefer a feeling or his real presence, even if it's unfelt? Again, that's not that we would never feel anything. We will. In Christ, we will. But we know the one who never changes, he's always there. We vacillate back and forth, though, don't we? And so there's, there's more possibilities in the midst of that water and that fire. But we come to the question of how do we navigate this? There's no handbook for this. Well, we mourn and we grieve. Remember the words of Christ is, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That encourages us to what? Mourn. There is a time to mourn. And he says that there will be comfort. Job, part of what Job was doing in his questions and everything was grieving. Remember how much he lost. He was in the company of friends. Part of our job, as we already mentioned, is to remember to not be Job's friends. Because we become, we become doctors real quick, don't we? We start writing prescriptions. Hey, Job, here's what you need to do. Hey, here's how you get through this. They had no clue. We don't need to prescribe an answer. 
We need to imitate our Savior who walks with and who walks through. It might require silence. It might require a shoulder. It might require a word. It might require a work. It could, it could be any number of things. It requires love. It requires compassion. It requires patience. Let us be that with each other. Let us do that for each other. How does it take place? It, it's, it's, it's mourning and grieving. It's going to take place over time. It's going to take place individually. We all grieve in, our, in individual ways, but notice I said individual ways, not isolated ways. And there may be time that we need to withdraw for a bit, but we don't stay withdrawn. And if we see someone withdrawing, we go, and, and we don't be belligerent, we don't be overbearing, but we come and we remind them we care, we're here, this is one body. And we do it together. Remember, Jesus shows up at the grave of Lazarus, and what does he do? He mourns, he grieves. He knows what he's going to do. He's going to, bring, he's going to bring Lazarus back. But there, in the midst of those people, what does he do? He joins them in their mourning. Wouldn't we be wise to imitate our Savior? Not saying that anybody hasn't, but joins in that mourning. We're not saying that time will heal all wounds, because it won't. The one who made time will heal and is healing. And so it will take time. We need to allow for that. And as we allow for that, we also allow for those unforeseen moments that bring something to the surface. You've probably all had them over the course of this week. Wednesday morning, I had one when I walked through the door and I looked and I Wondered how many people we can fit in here. Not because they're so excited to hear the truth of the gospel, but because of the loss of someone they love. Those aren't eyes I wanted to look through. And yet they make me ever more urgent to share the only truth that brings life. I don't know when those will come up. When they do, be willing to let yourself cry. And if you're next to them, or, or be silent, or whatever, however that morning individually takes place, and if you're with them, show some compassion. Remind them that you are there with them to walk through it with them. So we mourn and we grieve. The other thing we do is we know comfort. You know, how can we know comfort? Well, 2 Corinthians 1, 3-7 tells us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. How much is all? You're laughing. All is all. Thank you, Captain. So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction 
He comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort. So regardless of what we walk through, it's for what? It's for another's comfort. Perhaps the comfort that we, are, that, that, that we are called to bring is to a community that, if they're outside of Christ, they don't understand. How can you know comfort in the midst of this? Let me tell you, because of the one who comforts, the one who is comfort. If we're afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our Hope for you is unshaken, for we know that just that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Our comfort is for each other's comfort. Our affliction is for your comfort. It's similar to what Jesus told Peter. Peter, you're going to do this. Peter says, no, no, I'm not. I won't deny you. Never, ever, ever. I'm so strong, Jesus. It'll be good. No, you'll deny me. Jesus says, but I've prayed for you. So that when you turn, you will strengthen those. Peter's testing wasn't just about Peter and for Peter. It was for all of those around him. And it was a comfort and a strength. When Peter, after that, walks with Jesus on the beach, do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. And he weeps. Feed my sheep. He knows comfort that he might comfort. And again, Comfort's going to be over time. It's going to be individually. This is why we're supposed to know each other. We know what's comforting. If we know each other, we know what's comforting to each other, and we seek to be a comfort to each other. And we do it together. Because he's given us to each other to do that together. And what else do we do? Well, we bear witness. Even now, even in the hurt, yes. You had a choice when you got up this morning to stay in bed, to stay home, to go anywhere but where? Here. And the world watches. Because I know for a lot of you, the world around you knows who you believe. And they're not dumb. You confess Christ. You say that God is love. You say that God heals, that God protects, God provides. Where was God? You going to go to that place where they talk about that stuff? Yes. Why? Because it's true. And it's likely that maybe you didn't even have to say a word, but they saw you go once again. And this is not to get legalistic, folks, about you better be in church on Sunday morning. But when you are, it says something. Where are you going? I'm going together with the one body. Why? Because I hurt right now. And I know there's some healing that will take place there. In a different time, because... I'm rejoicing. And they understand my joy. 
in this time because I'm mourning and yet there's a joy that is there that is present even in the midst of this darkest of valleys. It's a chance to bear testimony and witness as 1 Thessalonians 4. Paul writes to this church, says something he doesn't say to any other church and should drop our jaw and amaze us and take our breath away. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Paul never said to any other church, I don't need to write to you about love because you get it. That's a testimony to the world around them. I don't know what they've got there, but it's different and it's weird. And I'm starting to get interested in it because I don't see it anywhere else. Let that be our witness. The world is watching. The world will wonder. Confess the truth of Christ and who He is and what He's doing. For we don't grieve as those without any hope. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18 says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who fall asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. For all of these things that we've mentioned this morning to be known to the fullness, the mourning and the grieving with, with hope, the comfort that God gives, the witness and the testimony, for all of these things to be known to the fullness that God would have us know them and for others to witness them and to benefit from them, we must walk through this and not avoid it. For there is no other way to come through it. He's put us together to do just that. To walk through it with Him. Our departed brother, he did enjoy his fiction. And there's a pretty well-known story called The Lord of the Rings that he liked a little bit. Scared me a little bit when he imitated Gollum. As Tolkien is winding to his conclusion, the ring's been destroyed. They've, Sam and Frodo have been saved. And Sam awoke in a different place than he was last found. And upon discovering that the whole adventure hadn't been a dream, that he's in Ithilien, in the care of the king, He's in a conversation with Gandalf and he says, is everything sad going to come untrue? In Christ it has. In Christ it is. And in Christ it will. What ensues after that, do you remember what, if you've read it, do you remember what ensues after that? 
interruption of laughter. He says, I hadn't heard laughter. It was like music on the ears. And this laughter erupts, though they bear all the marks of the travail that had passed. And what they endured would not be forgotten. The great shadow has departed. We rejoice in the midst of our mourning that Gabe has come into that day of laughter unmixed with tears in the care of the king. And while Gabe, who was a merry sojourner, if you ever heard him, he was humming, singing, tapping on things. He was a merry sojourner. He's gone home. We continue to sojourn knowing the reality of laughter mixed with tears, but also knowing the care of that same king. That king that cares for him in his very presence is caring for us now. We confess that as we gather this day that we in Christ truly worship together because we're in him and because of the unity of Christ and the believer, there is a reality of our worshiping together that's even more real than what we encounter here. We also know that as we continue our sojourn here, we have come into an evil day. Evil, but not hopeless. Because we haven't come alone, and it does not have the final word because of who we've come into this day with. Jesus, our Savior, who has overcome evil and is victor over the grave. His Holy Spirit is within and among us, and we are accompanied by brothers and sisters who have been remade in His image and are being conformed increasingly more to His image. So let us walk this path not in despair, but in faith and in hope, following the one who has gone before us and on Tuesday stood to welcome one of our and one of his beloved.